It's important for us to understand these responses for two reasons. The various responses from like Judea, Samaria, and Galilee. Here it is. Number one, John is writing about these signs. He specifically picked out these signs so that whoever hears the gospel, whoever reads this letter, whoever hears this letter will come to faith in Christ. And then they will remain in Christ. They will continue on believing. That's the purpose of this book. And therefore, once one comes to believe in Jesus Christ, they no longer look for signs. It's unnecessary. They are like dust in the wind. As Hebrew says, now that person rests. Oh, I love that. Are you resting in Christ's work? Are you resting in him? Is he your rest? Second, it's important because it teaches us about man. Ooh. It teaches about human nature. Let's not forget what John wrote earlier on in chapter 2 about human nature, that he recognized human nature. Listen to this. Verse 24, the very end of chapter 2. But Jesus, on his part, was not entrusting himself to them. Why? Why would he not entrust himself to these men, these people who were following him? Look up to verse 23 prior. Because many believed in his name. Why? Because they were observing the signs. It was all about the signs. And so he did not, on his part, was not entrusting himself to them because he knew all men. Well, what did he know about men? Verse 25, he did not need anyone to testify concerning man for he knew what was in man. He understood our sin nature. He understood the natural propensity to not believe him to reject God, to ignore God, not even to see God, not even to see him. And so we understood this. Contrast that with the Samaritans. Contrast that with the Samaritans who heard the word of God and believed. Amen? So what we see here is that In this reference, men continually seek for signs. Men who continually seek for signs demonstrate unbelief. They might follow him around. Listen to this. They they follow him around. They hear him speak. They watch him perform. Remember, the Galileans, they did all those things. But their motives were self-centered and selfish. Jesus exposed that last passage, passage we were at last week, right before these verses. Followed him. Because he met their physical needs. Now, if you're not listening up to this point, I want your attention. This is not the character of the Christian faith. This is not the character of the one who, according to chapter 1, verse 12, receives or believes him for eternal life. This is not the character of one who, according to chapter 1, verse 13, is born of God. This is not the one who, according to chapter 3, verse 8, is born of the Spirit. It's not the faith that saves. Just, Jesus, you're here for me, and you're here to meet my needs. If that's why you're following Christ, you are self-deceived, and you do not know him. Point blank. I say that with total love. The Christian faith, though it does... Recognize and depend on Christ for common grace. Everyday needs, yes. It does not follow him for that alone. 
but trust him as Lord of all of your life, for all of life. They trust him for saving grace. In other words, the Christian faith prioritizes saving grace over common grace. It's both and. We still, as Christians, we trust God to provide. He gives us jobs. Through our prayers, he provides, he gives, right? But that is not why we follow him. We follow him because of Christ, and he gives eternal life. John is basically saying, yes, I want you to believe that he is Savior. I want you to know Christ. I want you to receive and trust him. But I also want you to believe that this belief, this trust, once it knows Jesus as the Messiah, seeks no more because it's found him. It perseveres. It remains. Now that you've come to Christ, those signs are just dust in the wind. They've fulfilled their purpose. They're not needed any longer. I have Christ. But sad to say, this is not what we find in our passage this morning. The crowd of Galileans, though they sought to follow him and and cross the Sea of Galilee and pursue him, did not believe. So according to verse 30, they were still asking for what? Signs. Let's pick up in verse 31 now. Verse 31, our fathers ate the man in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread out of heaven to eat. What are they doing here? They're challenging Jesus. That's exactly what they're doing. <laughs> we got Moses. He fed a whole nation. You, okay, maybe 20,000 people when it's all said and done. But Moses fed a whole nation for a long period of time. Can you match it? Can you better than that? Can you do something on a grander scale like Moses and then we might believe you? Jesus responds in verse 32. Truly, truly, I say to you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread out of heaven, but it is my Father who gives you, notice the plan, the true bread out of heaven. The first reference to bread is the manna back in the wilderness, and I think it's Exodus chapter 12. The true bread he's referring to, we're going to find out himself. The bread, the manna in the Old Testament gave physical, temporal life. He's saying, he's going to say, I'm the true bread out of heaven, and I give eternal life. And he who believes will eat or partake. Verse 34. They are still thinking physical bread. They are still there. Their, their minds are nothing but earthbound. So that's what's going on here. As we go on, verse 35, Jesus cuts to the chase. Notice what he says. Jesus' response, I am the bread of life. Okay, let's just cut to the chase. Here's what I'm saying. I, I, it's me I'm talking about. I'm the true bread out of, heaven, out of heaven. I am the bread of life. The one who's talking to you right now, Jesus is saying to that crowd, I am the bread that you need to live forever. And if you come to me, verse 35 The person who comes to me will no longer hunger, and he who believes in me will never, ever thirst. Notice this is the first of seven I am statements in the Gospel of John, all referencing his deity that go back to Genesis. I am. I am. Back to Exodus 12 to Moses. I am. Well, who do I say? Who am I? Moses. Go backwards, okay? The Jews would have totally understand this picture. When Jesus said, I am, their minds are going back to Moses on the mountain. Their minds are going back to Exodus when, God, when Moses before the burning bush. And Moses is like, you want me to be a mouthpiece? Who am I? And God's response is, tell them I am sent you. 
Wow. Perfect, beautiful, first of seven references to his deity in these I am statements. I am, first of all, the bread of life. In essence, he's saying this. I am the one who can satisfy you for all eternity. I am the one that can satisfy your longing heart. In me, you'll find forgiveness. Right? In me, you'll never hunger or thirst for meaning or purpose in life again. In me, you'll no longer search for an identity. I will be your identity, Jesus says. You will no longer wonder about your future. It's in my hands, Jesus is saying. And we'll say in a few verses to come. Having said that, verse 36, this is a rebuke. This is rough. Listen to this. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. You've hung around. You've seen me in action. You've watched and and observed all that I've done, and yet you do not believe. Ouch. It's not about how many signs. It's about a changed heart. The Samaritans believed he was a Savior and never had a sign done before him. And here you have the Galileans struggling in unbelief. Though there were many signs done right in front of them and they observed what Jesus did. And now I want you to know what happens in verses 37 through 40. This conversation takes a total turn. Look at your text. Jesus goes, here's what Jesus does. He's dialoguing with them about him and their response, right? Now he's given a total other perspective in verse 37 through 40. He's now saying, what I'm about ready to say is about between me and my father. I want to give you a little insight into the Trinity. I want to give you more insight of why I'm here. And here's another thing. Your unbelief is not going to keep me from accomplishing my father's will. Let's look at these few verses. Look at verse 37. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. I'm here for my Father's will. I'm here to accomplish what He wants. I am not here to accomplish what you want. All you want me to do is feed you. Oh, and a little bit earlier on, you were trying to seize me to make me king politically so that we can get under, out from underneath the the harsh rule of Rome. I'm not here for that either. I'm here to do my Father's will. And the one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. Back up for a second. Clearly, the focus and the attention now is between Jesus and the Father, whereas in the previous verses, Verses 30 through 36, it was Jesus and the Galileans. So as Jesus is ministering the gospel in the world, he knows he is doing it according to the will of heaven, his Father. Folks, when we're preaching the gospel, we know we're doing it successfully because of God's sovereign grace. And no amount of unbelief can thwart the will of God. Amen? Amen. 
In other words, though you follow me for the wrong reasons, though you don't, you don't believe me, men still will. What we have is the confidence of Christ and his Father. How can he do this? Where did this come from? Why? Three reasons. Number one, found in the text. First of all, the Father gives to the Son. Verse 37 and 39. Look at verse 37. The Father gives me. Highlight that. Verse 39. He has given me. Highlight that. First and foremost, his confidence came from knowing the Father would give to him. Listen, this is the teaching of election. This is the doctrine of being chosen by God. This is what this is. Who are those the Father gives to the Son? Who are they? Well, it's going to be those who believe, repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, right? That's how we're going to know. But they are those whom God has chosen. Jesus is going to teach this again in chapter 10. And by the way, I want you to notice something. When we think of election or chosen, first we go, oh no, don't do that. This is God's truth. This is God telling us what he has done behind the scenes in heaven. We embrace it. Okay? And I'll show you why. We'll just show you why. John chapter 10, verse 29. Look at this. On the good shepherd, he's now teaching that I am the good shepherd. Another I am statement. In verse 20. Oh, we're going to start here. 27. He said, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give eternal life to them, that they will, will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Isn't that beautiful? So these whom the Father are given to the Son are sheep. And those who don't believe show that they're not sheep. Right? Verse 26, you do not believe. Why? Because you're not of my sheep. My sheep hear my voice. The sheep are those the Father is giving to the Son. So the Son comes to earth. He gives his life. And what is going on here is you have the Father giving to the Son sinners for redemption. That's what Jesus is saying here. There's a whole lot more going on than what the naked eye sees. And the scriptures are telling us and giving us further insight of what's going on in the reality of heaven, particularly between the Father and the Son. Seventeen two. Wait a minute, excuse me. Yeah, ten twenty nine. My Father who has given them to me. There's the phrase again. My Father who has given them to me. The Father has given you to you come to Christ is because God the Father has given you to the Son. Wow. Let that sink for a minute. It's not just about you making a right decision. It's about God before time, before creation, before the foundation of this world. Choosing you. So when you think of eternal security, it's not just eternity future. It's past. And God has had his eye on you the whole time. Even before you were born, God says, I'm going to send my son to accomplish salvation because I chose you to be mine and to be my sons. Wow. 
Go to chapter 17, Jesus' prayer. Over and over and over again, we see this phrase, the Father gives to the Son. Over and over and over again. For example, verse 2. Even as praying to the Father, Jesus says, even as you gave him authority over all flesh, that to whom you have given him. There it is, the same phrase, basically. You have given him. Verse 6. I have manifested your name to the men whom you gave me out of this. There it is again. Whom you gave me out of the world. That were yours. And you gave them to me. There it is. The son recognizing, Father, you're giving them to me. You're giving them to me for what? To save them. The father gives them to the son, so the son will redeem them. Right? Verse 9. I ask on their behalf. I do not ask on behalf of the world, but of those whom you have what? Given me. There it is again. Verse 12. While I was with them, I was keeping them in your name, which you have what? Given me. Verse 24. Father, I desire they also whom you have given me. Over and over and over again. That means Christ came to die for those whom the Father would give to him. And it's manifested when we put faith in Christ. When we repent of our sins and put faith in Christ and trust him as Savior and Lord. Now, I know, I'm just like you, it's really hard difficult to harmonize the responsibility of man with the sovereignty of God. It is very difficult. So when I come to a passage like this, and there's many like this, I always revert back to Romans chapter 9 because it settles it for me. I want you to go there once again. This is not the first time we've been here. Romans chapter 9. It's a beautiful situation scenario going on between Paul and his Jewish brethren. Okay? His heart is broken because hardly any of the Jews were coming to Christ anymore. Okay? They they were blinded. And so in chapter 9, verse 1, he's giving you the setting upon which we're going to see the truth that is being taught here. He says, I'm telling the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience testifies with me in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were a curse separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren of the flesh, my Jewish brothers and sisters. My heart goes out for them. He's going to talk about it again in chapter 10. But let's stick here in chapter 9. Who are Israelites, verse 4. They had the advantage. To whom belongs the adoption of sons and the glory of the covenants. God gave them the law. They have the temple service and the promises who are the fathers. They had this rich inheritance, all this rich history. They had an advantage over the Gentiles, so to speak. And yet, just having this advantage, they still didn't come to Christ. The Galileans are having an advantage over people, yet they still didn't come to Christ. Just because you're in a church, you have an advantage, but it doesn't mean that person has come to Christ today just because you go to a church. A lot of people that attend church on Sunday mornings, are going to end up burning in hell because they never came to the Savior. That's what this is teaching. Yes. I'm glad I heard someone say that. That is so sad. Paul would say amen to that right here because his heart is broken. But look at verse 6. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. The preaching of the gospel and the preaching of Christ has not failed because of men's unbelief. That means Christ has not failed. 
Oh, you could, I think you could legitimately say that. Not only is the word of God not failed, but Christ has not failed, for they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel. Nor are they all children, because they are Abraham's descendants. In other words, you're not a true Israelite just from physical birth. Okay, okay you are an Israelite from physical birth, but you're not a, recept, a receptor of the promise because of physical birth. Okay? You're an Israelite, you're Jewish, you're pure, you're mom and dad, you're lineage, you're, you're all that. That's wonderful, that's great, but that does not mean that you're saved. It does not mean that you're going to receive the promise that God has given. Look at this, verse 8. That is, it's not the children of the flesh who are children of God, but the children of the promise are regarded as descendants. And he goes on, for this is the word of the promise. He explains what promise of verse 8 and verse 9. The time I will come and Sarah shall have a son. And not only this, but there was Rebekah also, when she had conceived twins by one man, our father Isaac. For though the twins were not yet born and had done nothing good or bad, so that purpose statement, God's purpose according to his choice would stand, not because of works, but because of him who calls. In other words, they were chosen before they were born to show and to demonstrate that the one who received the promise, it wasn't based because he did better than the other child. But it's simply based on God's call. In verse 12, so it said to her, the older will serve the younger. That's a reversal. Usually it's the other way around normally. Verse 13 is the harsh statement. Jacob I love, but Esau I hated. By the way, Esau still lived a very flourishing life on earth. God was very gracious to him with common grace, by the way. Now, let's park there for a second. I'm scratching my head just like you, and you're going, wow, this is hard to swallow. This is real. I'm having a hard time reconciling. I've got a responsibility in the sovereignty of God. Okay? So he anticipates our struggle in verse 14, and he asks a rhetorical question. What shall we say then? There is no injustice with God, is there? In other words, I want to cry, foul, foul, wait a minute. This is unfair. This isn't right. How can this be? And Paul's answer to that is, may it never be. This does not mean God is unjust. Forget the idea of God being fair. It's not about God being fair. It's God is just in all his ways. Verse 15, he gives, he's full of illustrations here from the Old Testament. Verse 15, for he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then, it, what does it refer to? The personal pronoun, salvation, receiving of the promise. It does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs or strives, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I raised you up to demonstrate my power in you that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. Wow. I like the so then. It's like, let's bring it home. So let's conclude he has mercy on whom he desires and he hardens whom he desires. Verse 19, he anticipates the question again. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who resists his will? Look at me. I just want to capture your attention for a moment. At this point, we would expect a 15, 20 verse explanation of how, how the responsibility of man and the sovereignty of God come together. But we are not given that. 
Look at the answer. Verse 20, on the contrary, who are you, O man, who answers back to God? The thing molded will not say to the molder, why did you make me like this, will it? Or does not the potter have the right? Stop there for a moment over the clay. We live in a culture where it's all about individual rights. In a culture like ours, it makes it much more difficult to accept something like this. When's the last time we heard a church crying out for God's right instead of mine? Christ, you have the right to judge. You're, it's about your right. It's about your will. It's about what you want done, not me. That's the church, by the way. So, does not the potter have the right over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for common use? And basically, Paul drops it at that right there. He's saying, you know what? You have finite minds, and, and I know you're struggling with human responsibility, the sovereignty of God, and the sovereignty of His grace, and I want you to know that the sovereign of a king always wins out over the subjects. Amen? But leave it at that. Rest in that God is in control. Now, what good does that do us? Let's go back to chapter 6 of John. We're going to find out right now. Christ holds us secure. Verse 37, 39. I will certainly not cast out the one who comes to me. Everyone who comes to Christ comes because they're chosen. If one, if one comes to Christ, don't worry about whether he's elect or not. Forget that. He is. She is. That's why they're coming, okay? But look at verse 39. This is also the will of him, the Father who sent me, the Son, that of all that he has given me, I what? Lose nothing. This is eternal security. It means you are secure in Christ forever. This is found also in a passage we were just at in chapter 10 of John. Listen, my sheep hear my voice, I know them and they follow me. And I give eternal life to them and they will never perish. Never perish. And though no one will snatch them out of my hand. I don't lose a one. Whoever the Father gives to me, they're not lost. They're eternally secure. They might go backwards. They might struggle and, and waddle in their sin, but I'm not going to lose them. No one's going to snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one's able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. Double catch. Double security. The Father and the Son. Listen to Romans chapter 8. Oh, this is beautiful. 38 and 39. Paul says, For I am convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing on earth can separate you from your Savior. Wow. Here's what's going on. The Father chose you before the foundation of the world. The Son came to the world and accomplished and secured your salvation on the cross and his resurrection. And the Holy Spirit awakened you to Christ. 
so that you would believe him. So this salvation, the Christian faith, is a Trinitarian work of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. That's what Jesus, in essence, is teaching. It's all of God. Here's what he's saying. Therefore, I cannot take any credit whatsoever. Zero credit. To give glory to God is to give him the credit. Because all that he has done from beginning to end. And notice finally, number three. He says the son will raise him up on the last day. Your salvation is not done yet. (laughs) You've been justified. You are presently being set apart for his glory. That's the daily walk with Christ you experience every day. But you now have a future blessed hope. And you know that one day he's coming to take you home. You're going to be caught up in the rapture, okay? Or, you, or, or when you die, you're going to meet him. But later on in John 14, he goes and he says, I am going to prepare a place for you. And that place is done. It's ready. Will you be? Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord God, I think oftentimes we fail to understand that this saving grace is the work of the Trinity. And God, it is awesome that it began with you choosing us from the foundation of the world. The Son came to redeem, to secure, to accomplish our salvation. And the Holy Spirit indwells us to awaken us to Christ so that we receive Christ actively and respond by believing Him as Lord and Savior. And therefore, God, it's it's a trick. So to, to... To deny Christ is to deny the work of the Trinity. It it, it is to, it's just to, it's the unpardonable sin. But God, we're here by your grace. We take no credit for ourselves. It is all of you. And as a result, we worship you. Oh God, may these truths guide our hearts throughout a work week. When, when, when different things and circumstances happen to us, may this truth be our bedrock, that you, God, are our Savior. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.